We are back in the book of Acts this evening. Took a long break. Acts chapter 2, we'll put in at verse 14. Acts 2, verse 14. Our presidents give a ton of speeches. We know that. Hundreds, if not thousands, in their terms. Generally, there are a few that are given more attention, particular attention, unless something unusual happens on the national stage. But in general, the State of the Union always draws a few more listeners than usual. The inaugural addresses also usually get a little more attention than the run-of-the-mill speech, particularly a president's first inaugural address where vision and temperament are being scrutinized by the millions of people who are listening. Uh, Presidential trivia, always fun to read through, and the factoids about inaugural speeches did not disappoint. For example, Ronald Reagan's first in 1981 was the warmest inaugural address in history at 55 degrees. The coldest, that was Ronald Reagan's second inaugural uh, inauguration just four years later, seven degrees. It was so cold that Congress had to pass a last-minute resolution to give permission to use the rotunda for the event. They had to move it indoors. There's also a huge variety in the length of inaugural addresses. George Washington's second address was the shortest, just 135 words. I think I've passed that already tonight. The longest so far was William Henry Harrison's disastrous 8,400-word speech, which various sources record took between 90 minutes and two hours to deliver in 48-degree weather. Historians debate how much of a toll the speech took on Harrison and the balls and things that he participated in after, but here's what they know. They know he refused a coat while he was speaking, spoke for two hours outside, and was dead 31 days later. He caught pneumonia, and he just never recovered. In Acts chapter 2, we have the very first sermon of the church age. It's the inaugural address of a new dispensation, a new era in God's working with human beings. The book, Acts, is full of sermons. We're going to encounter a whole bunch of them as we move through these chapters. And each of the sermons is a little bit different. They're never, you know, cookie cutter. Each has its own length, its own style, its own audience, its own response. Sometimes the response is really great, like we would see at the end of this sermon, and sometimes people get murdered at the end of their sermons. I hope mine goes better than that this evening. But a lot of variation and a lot of difference. Now, each is significant and powerful. None of them are sort of throwaway or run-of-the-mill. They're all important. And some are more famous than others. But here we come to the very first. And it's interesting. It was delivered spontaneously. Peter hadn't planned to deliver a Bible study that day. He didn't come with notes or an outline. The Holy Spirit spoke through him. Something very unusual was happening, and the Holy Spirit showed up not just to manifest in uh, flames of fire and those sorts of things, but also to give Peter the words he would need to speak powerfully to this group. And according to verse 40, only a portion of what Peter said is actually recorded for us. So we call this the first sermon. It's actually a portion of the first sermon, and we don't have the rest of it, but that's okay. By the end, 3,000 people will have been born again, and the church is suddenly established in a remarkable way. And it's a remarkable sermon, especially when we consider who is delivering it. But as we'll learn from Peter here tonight, in the church age, God's power is not reserved for just the accredited or just the powerful or just the prominent. 
God's power is made available to all of us who trust in the Lord, every member of his body. What was begun in Acts 2 continues today through our lives as members of Christ's body here on the earth as we are sent to go out preaching and living in the power of the Spirit. For time's sake, we're going to take his sermon in two parts uh, this week and hopefully next week. As we move through Peter's study, we want to notice its information, of course, and the features, but we also want to allow him to preach this sermon to us as well and consider the implications of his message for our own lives. This isn't just a message that was delivered to some people in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. It's being delivered to us tonight. God's word is alive. And that means that this sermon is alive and has something to speak to, uh, to us tonight, to each and every one of us. Now, when we last left off a month ago, the believers had been told by Jesus before his ascension, hey, go into Jerusalem and wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit. And they were doing that. And they would be getting together and having these long prayer meetings. Uh, they chose Matthias to replace Judas. And so they've been waiting and just gathering together and praying and doing exactly what Jesus asked of them. And then there on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit fell on them uh, with the noise of the sound of a rushing wind, we're told, and with flames of fire that separated into individual tongues appearing above the heads of these 120 or so believers. And then the miraculous speaking of other languages. Uh, all of these people, all of these Christians started speaking, uh, not in unintelligible languages, but languages that were known, but that they had never learned. And we believe that at this moment, they're not in the upper room, otherwise it wouldn't have been able to accommodate a crowd of thousands of people. Plus, we're going to see what time it is. It's the hour of prayer. And so we have a pretty good guess that they're in the temple complex right now when all of this happened, which makes sense why suddenly everybody's paying attention to them and a huge crowd has gathered. And there, in verse 14 is where we begin, Peter begins to speak to the audience that has gathered. Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. For these, speaking of the other disciples and himself, are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. Here's what had happened if you weren't here last time. Some scoffers in the group were looking for a reason to write off what was happening. I mean, it was obvious that something supernatural and miraculous was happening in their midst. The noise was profound. Everyone could see these tongues of fire, and now these Galileans were speaking all sorts of different languages. A whole bunch of them were listed from all the corners of the known world. And people were wondering, what is going on here? This isn't just something that you, oh, yeah, look what's happening over there. Anyway, I was going on my way to the market. Everybody was stopping and giving their attention. And some of the people, as we are prone to discover in any large group, they weren't really interested. They just wanted to write it off. And so they said, hey, these people are drunk. They're obviously just carrying on uh, like the drunk guy on the street corner, that crazy guy that you see from time to time, right? And it was a silly suggestion that a group of people could suddenly become drunk and start speaking in languages they had never learned. Uh, not to mention the sound of the rushing wind and the tongues of fire. I don't know how alcohol could cause that. Maybe you're the drunk one. You're having hallucinations and hearing things. But there's scoffers in the crowd making this silly suggestion. And they were probably, as I said, in the temple complex. And this was the first hour of public prayer. Peter says, hey, look, it's 9 a.m. We're not drunk. 
And scholars point out that during feast times, this is where during the time of Pentecost, right? During feast times, it would have been unlawful for a good Jew to eat or drink anything before the morning sacrifice. And that's the time that we're at right now. And so let alone be drunk at 9 a.m. And so Peter says, hey, listen, nobody here is drunk. Let me explain what's going on. And we see a dramatic change in our man Peter. Just a few short weeks before this moment, he had been frightened of a little servant girl there by the campfire. He had denied Jesus vehemently, ran away. Even after that, he had been hiding behind locked doors, right, afraid for his life. Now, after being restored by the Lord and spending time with the risen Christ and being filled with the Holy Spirit here in chapter 2, he is bold. He is taking advantage of an opportunity to preach about his Messiah. He energetically demands their attention of everyone who could hear, not just here in verse 14, but again in verse 22. He says, hey, listen to what I have to say. I have something that you need to hear. He speaks not because he's worried about their reputation, by the way. He doesn't say, hey, they're saying we're drunk. I need to set that right. That's not what this is about. He's taking an opportunity to preach the gospel to them. Peter doesn't stand up and threaten to sue them for libel, in other words. Rather, he declares that he has something important to say, something that they need to pay attention to. And he says in verse 16, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. Now, before we get into Peter's first section here, we want to know what is happening. Remember, a powerful set of miraculous phenomena had just occurred. People were supernaturally uh, affected. Miraculously, they were hearing the sound of rushing wind, seeing these tongues of fire, and listening to unschooled Galileans speaking a wide variety of languages they had never learned. And Peter immediately stands up and starts to explain these phenomena using the Bible, using God's Word. These experiences that were taking place were rooted in Scripture, and they had purpose, biblical purpose. Now, we want to be dynamically spirit-filled as individuals and as a church, certainly. And we believe that our God is miraculous and that He does supernatural things in our midst even today. However, If some experience happens at some church gathering or some conference or in your personal life, and you think, well, that was a spiritual thing that just happened, unusual, maybe miraculous, this this experience happened, it must, must, must be able to pass the test of Scripture. Because if it's spiritual and if it's true and if it's really from the Holy Ghost, it will be defensible using God's Word. But if an experience or something that we see out in the wider Christian world, something that a church or a group is saying, hey, look at what God did in our midst, look at how the Holy Spirit broke out upon us, and look at what we did, if that experience is outside of the boundaries and the precedence of Scripture, then it is not an experience we should be interested in. And I want to note before moving on here, throughout the rest of this chapter, we never see the apostles say, okay, now everybody stop talking so we can get back to this experience. Uh, Everybody stop interrupting us so we can go back to the speaking of foreign languages or so that we can get some more fire down on us. That never happens at all. The manifestations were over. In fact, the way it reads, it's that they were experiencing this incredible moment of spiritual power manifested in miracles and signs, and that was then interrupted by a Bible study. 
And I think that's pretty remarkable because oftentimes, at least in the you know, modern way of thinking, we think the opposite is more spiritual, that you know, we see this sometimes in more charismatic groups where order is disrupted for disorder, right? And that just strange and unusual phenomenon, as long as they're emotional, that's what the Holy Spirit wants. But what do we see here? We see a miracle taking place, and it's interrupted by an orderly Bible study that Peter is delivering, the preaching of the gospel. And consistently, we see that the believers in the book of Acts were not chasing experiences. They were simply in communion with the Lord and allowed Him to take the lead. And because they were following hard after God, God did dramatic things in their midst, powerful things, remarkable things. And so we'll touch more on this in a moment. Verse 17, Peter's quoting the prophet Joel here. He says, "'And it shall come to pass in the last days,' says God, "'that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh.'" Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams, and on my men servants and on my maid servants I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they shall prophesy. What really jumps out here is the wide access being made available to all of God's people. This is a big deal, sort of easy for us to take for granted now that we're 2,000 years into the history of the church, right? But this is a big deal. Think about it. In the Old Testament, there were hard lines drawn between those who had more or less access to God. Now, of course, we see in the Old Testament, God would often interact with individuals outside of, say, the priestly class, right? But what do we see throughout the history of Israel? You had the priests. They had access to God. People outside of the priestly class, the Levites had a little less access to God. And then outside of that tribe, you didn't have that kind of access to God. You needed them as a go-between. You had the nation, masses of people, and then often throughout the Old Testament, you would have one or two or maybe a handful of prophets or seers or specific individuals that God had raised up for a specific ministry. If you wanted to hear from the Lord, you had to hear it through them. You look at the history books of Israel, what are the kings always saying? They're saying, go find me a prophet so we can ask God something. Go find us a seer so that we can have some idea of what to do next. And they had to go find that guy and say, hey, have you heard from God recently? And then they said, well, I'm going to go talk to God. I'll see what happens. And it's this whole thing. There's all of these lines and separations and different groups. It's, it was a different system, a different what we would call a dispensation. And so if you wanted to hear from the Lord, you had to hear it from someone else. And even the prophets of the Old Testament did not have the kind of communion and access that the Holy Spirit is given to us in the church age. The, the kind of communion and access that is made available to you and I to the Holy Spirit is amazing in comparison to what they experienced in the Old Testament. And it's not just made to one or two people or just a pastor or just this person or that person. It's made available to everyone in the church today. One commentator pictured it as being the prophets got a few drops sprinkled on them from time to time of the Holy Spirit, whereas in the church now, an overflowing flood is poured out on every single believer. That's God's plan. Now, that may not feel true when we read the dramatic stories of Elijah or Jeremiah. Wow, wow, look at the relationship that person had with God. But we can say by the authority of Scripture, they said, no, they're the ones that are jealous of us because God has thrown open access to us and he has poured out his spirit to us. 
And no longer does he stay at a distance where while I'm in the Holy of Holies and you can only approach me in certain ways, the Lord says, hey, you can come boldly into the throne of grace now. And we can enjoy the overflowing flood of the Holy Spirit. And so even though that may not feel true, it is true. God has poured out his Holy Spirit on male and female, young and old alike. All have a place in his work. All can be used for his glory. In fact, God intends for all of us to experience this filling and the life that comes with it. Based on Peter's declaration here, we should each expect that God would be doing dramatic spiritual work in and through our lives. Based on what Peter is saying in this first sermon of the church, we have to say, am I a Christian? Yes, okay, then I have to expect God to do great and dramatic spiritual things in my life and through my life. Because he says, that's what I'm going to do in these last days in the church era. I'm going to pour out my spirit on all of my men servants, all of my maid servants, your sons and your daughters, your young and your old, male and female. It's just going to be poured out. That's what God wants to do. We are not allowed to remove ourselves from this part of God's plan. And if we are removed from it, if God is not working in our lives or working through our lives and we're Christians, it's not because we're not important enough or special enough to be a part of God's work. It's because we've somehow quenched the Holy Spirit in our lives. Later in the New Testament, we're told, hey, don't quench the Holy Spirit. And so the New Testament is clear that each and all are given the Holy Spirit in God's body, in Christ's body, the church. Each and all are gifted to serve. Each and all are given callings and good works to discover and walk in. It's not that some Christians are given a life to live and a gifting to serve and that other ones are not. All of us, each and all, are given these giftings and callings and are given the Holy Spirit. And so we should expect the Holy Spirit to be ministering to us and through us. Now, does this mean that we should chase after particular manifestations like the one listed by Joel and Peter? Okay, well, Joel said this, so as long as I go out and as long as I prophesy or as long as I speak in tongues, that's the Holy Spirit working through me. Well, while we see in the Bible that those sorts of things are still a part of God's work, what we don't see ever is the apostles chasing after those things specifically. One of the sub-themes of Peter's sermon is that the miraculous works of God are his to choose and accomplish according to his pleasure and his purposes and his will. It's his decision when he pours out miraculous things or which gifts he gives and when he gives them. We cannot schedule a prophetic word, in other words. I was once in a meeting uh, with representatives from a couple of different churches, and they were talking about doing this event or whatever, and they were trying to schedule out, you know, how the event was going to look, and we were a few months out, and I was seeing if we were going to be involved or not. Anyway, I'd been invited to the meeting, and so they said, okay, and we'll do this, and we'll do this, and then right here, we're going to have a prophetic word, and then we'll do this, and we'll do this, and then maybe another prophetic word. And I scratched my head and I thought, you can schedule your gifts of prophecy like that? You know, that, that's just not what we see demonstrated in the book of Acts. That's, that's just not what we see. We cannot develop and harness, harness these sorts of spiritual abilities like having spiritual visions, for example. God accomplishes those things when he wills. We don't experience them like the X-Men harnessing their powers, right? It's not like it's the force where I grab onto it and now I'm able to harness it at will. These are things that the Lord accomplishes through us when he wills. 
And we do not see the apostles gathering together ever in the book of Acts to have a vision quest or to have a tongues night. They just don't. Rather, we see them gathering together all the time, and when they did, expecting God to do work in and through their lives as they simply follow after Him and obey Him and live out the Christian life. And God did amazing things in their midst, but He did so according to His plan and His design and for a purpose. It's His work pouring out, not our work digging up, in other words. Verse 19, I will show wonders in the heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming and great and awesome day of the Lord. Here we see that Joel's prophecy continued and includes events that clearly have not happened yet. Now, there's a lot going on here, but here's where we'll start. First of all, take note of this, that the very first sermon of the church age was centered on prophecy specifically the literal fulfillment of prophecy, now and future. The idea that, you know, the idea of, of future prophecy unfolding, that continues in the following verses. But here's what we're seeing. So these miraculous things happen, right? The wind and the tongues of fire and the speaking in different languages. And people want to know what's going on. And Peter explains, I can tell you what's going on. This is the literal fulfillment of part of what the prophet Joel spoke about hundreds of years ago. And then Peter goes on to speak about a coming judgment that will be accompanied by cataclysmic changes in the heavens. And we harp on this a lot here at Calvary, but it's important. There is no reason to believe that the unfulfilled prophecies in the Bible will not have a literal future fulfillment. In fact, we have to assume that and believe that if we uh, read a passage like this one honestly. And so this is a great example of how to interpret Bible prophecy. People come around and say, something's happening. What is happening? And Peter says, I'm glad you asked. Here's what's happening. This is a literal fulfillment of something that Joel talked about. By the way, here's something else he talked about, about a future coming judgment. And there's going to be cataclysms in the cosmos. And the day of the Lord is a real thing that is coming. It is talked about a lot in the Old Testament. And guess what? Just like our pouring out of the spirit that you're witnessing right now had a real literal fulfillment. So this too is going to have a real literal fulfillment. Peter cited Joel to explain what God was doing in the lives of his people. He said, here's what's happening. We're God's people. We're Christians. And Joel says that in the last days in the church age, the Holy Spirit was going to be poured out. And here's what it was going to look like. Those people who believed, he said, this is what's happening. But then he continued citing Joel to explain what was in store for those who are not God's people. It's as if he said, hey, here's what's going on with us since you guys are wondering, but I've got some bad news for you. Here's what's going to be going on with you if you don't get saved. It's called the day of the Lord. It's called the coming judgment, the one which you are not going to escape from if you're not born again. And we know that Peter had their salvation on his mind because of the very next verse. He says in verse 21, it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And so the day of the Lord is inevitable and it is real, but it is not inescapable. God has provided the way by which a person can pass from death to life. And the solution is very simple. A person must call on the name of the Lord. And notice before we move on, this issue of eternal salvation was the most important thing as far as Peter was concerned. 
The people come and wonder what's going on. He has the very first sermon of the church age. He makes a quick skip and a hop off of, okay, here's what's going on since you're wondering, by the way, you need to get saved because judgment is coming and you are guilty in your sins right now. Peter didn't talk about the oppression of Rome. He didn't talk about civil unrest in the area. He didn't talk about how to be emotionally happy and fulfilled. He spoke to them about eternal life and the judgment to come. Now, these listeners might rightly ask, okay, call on the name of the Lord. Who is the Lord? And what is his name if I have to call on his name? You see, Peter's message up to this point was not sufficient to save yet. It's not enough to simply know that God exists and that he's doing things. Now Peter turns to Jesus Christ, proving that he is Lord and Messiah, the one and only way by which people can be saved. Verse 22, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. Now, we shouldn't hurry past what Peter is insinuating and declaring here. Among the audience that day were people who were personally involved in the conspiracy to murder the Son of God, at least to the degree of calling for his crucifixion before Pilate. Many in the crowd that day, when they shouted out, crucify him, crucify him, and undoubtedly, according to what Peter's saying, he says, hey, yeah, you guys did that. And it wasn't just a general, well, some people did that. He says, yeah, you saw Jesus do miracles in your midst. You heard him teach and you delivered him up lawless, to lawless hands to be murdered. Now, we're all guilty of Christ's crucifixion. Sometimes people argue over who killed Jesus. Was it the Jews? Was it the Romans? Yeah, everybody killed Jesus. Every single human being who's ever been born is responsible for the death of Jesus Christ because he came to save. He came to deal with all of our sins. And so we're all guilty of Christ's crucifixion. He bore all of our sins on the cross. But consider the immeasurable mercy of God. Those who refused to believe even as they watched Jesus perform miracles, those who refused to acknowledge he was the son of God even after seeing all of his signs, those who murdered God's only begotten son, yet God sent those people another chance to be saved. He worked and sent his people into their midst to give them a chance to be included in the inheritance of heaven. That is astounding, the astounding grace of God, the lengths that he goes to to offer salvation to lost mankind. Now here, Peter first focuses on Jesus' life, who he was, what he did, and then he moved on to discussing Christ's death. And Peter states incontrovertibly that Jesus' death on the cross was all sufficient to conquer sin and death forever. Jesus' death plus nothing solves the problem of sin. It is not Jesus' death plus baptism, not Jesus' death plus circumcision or tongues or anything else. Jesus' death on the cross paid it all, paid in full. And the proof of that payment was that the power of death was defeated. Its pains were loose. Death was unlocked and undone 
at the cross, but only for those who have a part in Christ's resurrection. Only those who are rescued by the Savior can shake free of the horrors of death and be raised to life as he was. That's the message of the gospel. After looking at Jesus' life and death, Peter will next turn to the resurrection, which is central and primary to all the sermons of Acts, but we'll save that portion for the next time. But seeing as we are a church that loves Bible study and places a great emphasis on the study of God's Word and the teaching of God's Word, we want to highlight some of the features of this, the first sermon of the church age. First of all, the whole thing was rooted in Scripture, not rooted in feelings, not rooted in what was popular in the day. It was rooted in the Word of God. Peter took us through a passage in Joel. Next, he's going to move on to a couple of Psalms that he's going to talk about in detail. And he treats those scriptures as true and authoritative. He treats them like they matter. He says, here's an obscure to us reference of the book of Joel. The book of Joel is probably one that most of us are not very familiar with, especially compared to, say, the Gospels or one of the epistles, maybe. And he says, hey, the book of Joel, let me read a passage to you. This matters. It means something. It has an impact on our lives and on this world. And so he treats these passages like they matter. What has God said and how must my life conform accordingly? Second, Peter prioritized certain things and he did not prioritize certain things in this sermon. He didn't spend a bunch of time talking about the experience they had just witnessed. He didn't just say, let's just talk forever about the tongues of fire and how great that was. He, he moved on and spent his time focused on the need for salvation, God's will and his prophetic plan. It's not that other topics are unimportant, but they are less important. Look, the most important message that heaven has sent to earth is that people can be saved from hell. There are other topics that need to be talked about and are important to be discussed and we want to you know, cover as we study God's word and as we teach God's word, but there is one thing that is the most important. There are things that are less important than the fact that people are dying and entering into a Christless eternity. And we need to just prioritize what the first Christians here prioritize, what the apostles prioritize, and that was salvation, the resurrection, our hope for the future. In this situation, for example, the injustices of Roman rule were less important than the fact that these people needed to be saved, and they needed to be saved like right now. Of course, other topics would be addressed in other sermons and throughout the New Testament, but the preaching of the gospel and the life and death choice of whether a person accepts Jesus was and is the most important thing. It is primary and it is our priority. There's more we could say about the sermon itself, but let's turn to the implications before we're finished here because this sermon is still preaching and it's preaching to us tonight. As we know, the result of this little Bible study is the conversion of thousands of people. They heard a simple message that they were guilty before God, but that God made a way that they might be saved. And that way is Jesus who lived and died and rose again, and that all who call on his name, turning from their sins and believing in him will most assuredly be saved, even those who are guilty of his murder. That was the message. Now, maybe you tonight are here. I think most of us are probably believers, but maybe you tonight are having the same response that many had that morning in the crowd. Well, I want to be saved. I believe. I want Jesus to save me from my sin. Well, you can be saved right now, just as they were. 
Jesus really did live and die and rise again. He really is the only route by which you can be saved from the guilt of your sins and the shackles of death and gain access into heaven. We've been shown how you can lay hold of this salvation. It is faith plus nothing because it's all of God's grace. It's a gift. It's been his plan from beginning to offer you this gift. It was his determined purpose. And to accept the gift of salvation simply means to believe what God has said here in the scriptures and to trust Jesus to save you as you turn from your sins toward him in faith. You know, God never rejects anyone who accepts him. There's never anybody who he says, ah, you, yeah, your application didn't make it all the way through. I called you back for the second interview and it's not going to work out. Your position's already been filled. If you accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, if you call on his name, you will be saved. The Bible promises it. God will not reject you. Now, for those of us who are already Christians here tonight, the implication of Peter's sermon is that God has poured out his Holy Spirit in an incredible, unlimited measure upon all his people. Not a few, but his intention is to pour it out on each and all. In the Old Testament, only a few knew the power of the Holy Spirit from time to time, but Acts 2 marks the start of a new era of history. We call it the church age. And in this church age, God intends for you to be spirit-filled. Not so we can chase unusual experiences, but so that God can do great things through us, so he can continue doing the work we see exampled in this passage and chronicled in the rest of the book. Like salvation, we're told that the, the Holy Spirit is a gift that is giving. The filling of the Spirit is a gift for us to receive. We don't earn it. We don't learn it. We receive it by faith, and the results are not simply a spiritual feeling that so often people chase after. Rather, we see that the Holy Spirit, when he fills a person, he transforms them. He transforms people so they can be used in God's service. We see the believers here being filled with the Holy Spirit, and what was the result? The result was great boldness where there hadn't been boldness before. We see a readiness to preach the gospel when the opportunity presented itself. We see these people subjected to the Word of God, that they put themselves under the Word of God and said, Lord, I'll obey what you have said, finding their place in God's plan according to what he has revealed. We see them demonstrating unconditional compassion on people who did not deserve it, Christ killers. And Peter said, man, I got to stand up and speak so that maybe some of these people can get saved. And so we want to be filled as they were. And so what should we do? Okay, Lord, I want to be filled. I want, I want to be part of the book of Acts. What should we do? Well, I'm encouraged that the first moments of church history, yes, were dramatic and powerful and wonderful, but you know what? They were also pretty routine compared to what we sort of regularly do when we gather. What were they doing? They got together in God's house, were praying together. They started praising the Lord when the Holy Spirit filled them up, and then there was a Bible study, and then they ministered one to another. That's pretty routine. That's kind of what we do when we gather together as Christians. We pray, we worship, we study God's word. And throughout the book of Acts, we're going to see that there was no special incantation, no secret recipe which, you know, resulted in the outpouring of God's power. In fact, when someone comes to the apostles and says, tell me the secret recipe, I want to buy it from you, they say, man, you're in trouble. You're about to be judged by God. Don't you ever say anything like that again. And so we see that People who are filled by the Spirit, which is what we want, they're just faithful, faith-filled Christians going about their day in communion with God, with a servant's heart, 
and that God moved in their midst and that he did what he wanted to do. And so tonight we have a chance, just a few more minutes, to pray and to worship in this gathering. And we expect God to continue doing what he began that day in the very first gathering of the church. He's going to do what he wants to do, and we should invite him to do that. And so let's draw near to him. Let's invite him to do what he wants and enjoy being in his presence as we worship with one another. Let's pray, and then we're going to sing ourselves out of the evening.